Welcome to episode eight of the Consultancy Business Podcast. Our theme this time is clarity. Our first of two great guests comes with insight on how to think clearly and how to help your clients tune into what really matters to their businesses. We're an enabling service. How do you lift your work to a higher level and stay focused on the stuff that will really make in the long term the biggest difference? That was Matt Mauer from Agendascope. We'll meet him properly in just a second. Later, we're sticking with clarity for the answer to a consultancy business community member question. Specialist copywriter Steve Clinton has advice on how to freshen up your marketing language and some pitfalls to avoid. The word solutions is utterly horrible and should be expunged from the language immediately. It's one of those deceptively useful words. It looks really handy because it looks like a synonym for answer, but because it's applied so broadly, it has become meaningless. So, good stuff to come. But first, some quick housekeeping notes. In some good news, we've dropped the paywall for the Consultancy Business Podcast, which means everyone gets the full benefit of these conversations completely for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do go back and listen to the extended versions of past episodes as they're now in your podcast feed. That's a big leap for us, and it's more important than ever that you share and recommend these episodes to help us reach more people. Word of mouth is our single most important tool for that. So do us a favor and spread the word to someone you think will benefit from what we're doing. Let's get into the first of our two conversations. This is someone who has a razor sharp focus on getting to what's important and getting it done well. Hello, my name is Matt Mower. I'm co-founder and CEO of Agendascope and navigator at the Art of Navigation. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Phil. Thanks for having me. Where I wanted to go with this conversation, I have spent my career wondering, amongst many other things, why it is good people make bad decisions and why it is we seem to build businesses that are full of energized, interesting smart, passionate people who get out of bed to do a good job every day, and yet the whole always seems a lot less than the sum of its parts. So I wanted to talk to you about that, both through the lens of consultancy and your experience working as a consultant, and also your own startup. But maybe we could start here, which is to say, of all the skills that consultants need, in the course of your own career, what have you seen to be the critical skills that consultants need to help clients make good decisions? I don't think anybody would disagree decision-making is a problem, but why is it such a problem? Often it's about future resource conflicts. Can we do this? Can we do that? Can we do the other thing? It is always about the future, which is by definition unknowable. And it's often very political. Probably nobody ever taught you how to make a good decision. You could do all kinds of courses in business leadership and all sorts of stuff. And at no point will there be decision making 101. And it turns out it's just really hard, right? So if you think about what that means, as a consultant trying to help people make decisions, you need to be able to give people perspective. You need to be able to help them stay their hand 
I mean, a key problem with decision making is jumping at the first option that looks reasonably good, which often is the option you're already familiar with, which is why it leaps to the forefront. And that's often a terrible idea. So the perspective to illuminate those future conflicts and future issues, to bring important things to bear, the trust to say, don't just do what you first thought of, but let's take a step back and, and really examine the consequences of this and a willingness to put resources into an unbiased examination of the options rather than piling them often behind the first thing we thought of or what X wants to do. How do you do those things? That's a tall order. Reminds me of something I've said before, which is that if I had my time again and I decided to um, found a business school, there are three things I would teach. I would teach collaboration, communication, and conflict. What I mean by those things is I would teach people the art of actually working together and the art of harnessing diversity of perspectives and experience and everything else in the process of working together. Then addressing the inevitable conflicts that arise from that which are various and often themselves quite emotionally laden. And then I would also get people to enhance both of those first two things by continually improving how they show up and how they connect and how they talk with each other and engage with each other. And it seems to me that what you're saying is that actually the job of the consultant is to be able to create the kind of environment in which those things, collaboration, conflict resolution, and high-quality communication become possible. Because in their absence, what you actually have is a situation in which, yeah, groupthink takes a hold or people get overly wedded to their own ideas. There's this, kind of, there's this thing about an inspired decision-making style, which means we just leap in the direction of something we feel passionate about, you know, and all those sorts of things take hold and then actually it's a really bad idea. Does any of that kind of resonate in terms of your own experience as a consultant? It does. For collaboration, I would perhaps use the word alignment. The reason I use that is where our needs, interests, goals align, collaboration becomes very easy where our needs, interests, goals are misaligned, collaboration, even among people who might otherwise be perfectly collaborative, becomes difficult, if not impossible. If we are misaligned, it becomes impossible to collaborate. So alignment of interests is almost one of the first things that you, you need. Communication therefore becomes incredibly important. I think it's quite interesting if you, I mean, I'm not an expert on the military, but I'm quite interested in how the military works. If you become an officer, they send you to officer training school. And a good bit of that is giving and receiving orders, right? How can you actually effectively tell people what you want them to do? Yet in business, there's almost no meaningful training about, I mean, we might not use the phrase orders, but all of it is we want things to happen. 
we want to achieve these aims. And yet there's almost no care given to how to communicate clearly what your aims are and how they should be achieved and what the boundaries. That begs a question, doesn't it? Which is, <laughs> why is it so many consultants seem to be so bad at this? Many clients would say that consultancy hasn't delivered value for them. And is it in your view that it's that, that classic problem of we are trying to solve the problem at the same level of thinking that caused the problem? In other words, the client thinks it's got a strategy problem, so the consultant thinks, well, they just need a better strategy and coming in with that, rather than the client thinks they've got a strategy problem, when actually, to your point, what they've got is they've got an alignment problem, and the alignment problem requires the consultant to really get in under the skin of what's going on and understand those different wants, needs, political considerations, and so forth. And that actually most consultants simply aren't equipped to do that. What springs immediately to mind is that the framing of a problem is key to coming up with any kind of productive way forward. That if we misframe a situation, it becomes almost impossible to find good solutions, good ways forward. And we each bring frames of reference as part of our context. Very few people I know are trained as consultants. In the world of, of independent consultants, it's mostly people who've had experience in some area and then parlay that into a higher level sort of consultancy skill, which means that they bring frames with them. So if you were a salesperson in your past career and you go into consultancy, you often come with a selling is the problem mentality. If you're from a marketing background, marketing is the problem. You, you bring certain frames of reference with you. Now, I came via a very strange route for somebody doing what I do. And I got here through curiosity. I'm not where I am because I made a conscious business decision to say this is a great business to be in or this is something that really sort of is very needed. I got here because I just became very, very curious about strategy and how it worked and therefore read very widely across a whole range of different people and studied with some people and, and figured it out. And failed a lot. And if we believe that failure is the best teacher, that taught me a lot about things that don't work. So my frame is perhaps a little different to some other people's frames as they come into this work. I got very persuaded that what you seek to do is completely determinant of everything that will happen. And therefore, if you haven't really nailed down what it is you're seeking to do in quite concrete terms, what you're going to get becomes very difficult to predict. But as a consultant, there's a pressure to deliver something, particularly early in an engagement where, where you haven't yet built that trusted bond. But how do you deliver? You fall back on the things you know how to do easily and well that create deliverables that you can present to somebody and say, here's the thing. Now, I took a different tack and said, what we should do is examine very closely what it is you're trying to do and force people into work that they actually don't want to do. If you say, right, so you said you're going to be a worldwide business. Okay, what does that actually mean? Does that mean you're going to have offices in other countries? Which countries or which continent? How many? How big? How many people? Are you actually building a huge business or are you building a little business? Or does worldwide just mean it's a website so you can buy it from anywhere? 
because the scale of the problem and therefore the scale of the challenge that you need to solve depends upon all those specifics. It's one of the great issues we combat, isn't it? Is that most clients have um, a bias towards action. And it reminds me of that that sort of classic um, yes minister line about politicians' logic. You know, we should do something, this is something, therefore we should do this. You know, you see a lot of that in client organizations. I remember, goodness, I remember a couple of years ago, a client saying to us, it's really strange having to do this thinking stuff. And that was a client that was on six figures and sort of stayed with me that as an example of that, that kind of action bias. I also totally agree with you, by the way, on the pressure then for consultants to kind of mirror that in the jumping to action. I have this thing, which is the, the day one feeling. And the idea of the day one feeling is it's that going into the new relationship where you're sat there, the client might have already paid out some money or has at least made a commitment to pay out some money for your services. You don't know each other. You haven't found any kind of working rhythm yet. There's been no demonstration of value. The client might also have been bitten in the past by really bad consulting relationships or outcomes and so on. And then what happens is all of that's kind of in play. And what it translates to is a significant amount of internalized pressure for me as a consultant to think, good God, I better start adding some value here. In my historic experience, what my inclination is to do is almost find the first thing that feels like it's a a hook or a way into value a valuable conversation and just kind of work that to death. But the problem with that is it's a bit like the explorer Tasman, you know, finds Tasmania and misses Australia. We're going deep on the small thing, not not deep on the thing that really needs the focus and the attention. So my own strategy in day one has been just going to have to learn to manage my internal discomfort here. What I like about what you were saying, you've dealt with that a different way, which is you flipped it and you basically have the clients do the work. So you've basically said, actually, there's a whole raft of hypotheses and assumptions in the statements that you've made that have led to the need for this engagement. Why don't we start by examining those? And I would imagine in the process of doing that, oftentimes what you are actually uncovering are very real issues or needs that haven't been thought through properly or whatever that then you can get into in much greater depth, yeah? Yeah, so... The reality is thinking is a hard activity. I mean, it uses your brain in a way that maybe you don't always do because often we're working on reflexivity and patterns. And reflexivity and patterns are great, right? Because if you had to think about everything, if you had to think about tying your shoes or brushing your hair or or this type of thing, you, you would never get anywhere. So the very thing that makes life work is one of the things that makes work hard. Now, one of the things I've found slightly counterintuitively is Telling people about how difficult it is and how much effort they're going to have to put in and how it's going to challenge them and how things aren't the way they think, you think that's going to put people off. And to be fair, it will put some people off. But the advantage of that is they're probably the people with whom the work would be a nightmare anyway. But actually, often it's exactly what they want to hear because it's the honest stuff that nobody ever told them, right? 
oh, this work on growing your business from 2 million to 10 million, that's going to be easy. We're just going to come up with a new strategy and you're going to deliver it to the folks. And no, it's going to be bloody hard work. And the reality is you are going to do most of it. I mean, there's different models of what it means to be a consultant. My way of looking is I'm an expert in some things, but none of those are your business. But what I believe I'm an expert in is gaining perspective, thinking about why things are the way they are, trying to get focus and alignment, that those things have greater value than the solution to specific problems right now. It goes to contracting. It goes to actually how you set out the basis for the engagement. And I don't mean contracting in a legal sense. I mean contracting in the sense of how this thing's actually going to work by way of a relationship. The concept within that I think you're talking to is the idea of inoculation, which is to say actually... If you talk to people honestly about what it involves, then actually they're so much more primed to be able to deal with it later on down the line. Yeah. And to me, that feels absolutely right because, well, it also protects the consultant because if I'm actually having a conversation about the fact that this is not going to be easy, the other one I tend to contract around is we're not always going to agree and that's okay too, you know. If we have that conversation, what I'm actually doing is protecting my own interests in the sense that I'm protecting the relationship in which I am a part and a co-creator, you know. So for me, those steps are absolutely vital. And if we miss them out, then yes, I think it becomes really easy for a client, whoever, to assume that, oh, a consultant's arrived now, this will all get solved really, really fast. Actually, what that's doing is it's setting the relationship up for failure. Matt, I want to talk to you about going back to this idea of good decisions and bad decisions. I want to talk to you about your own startup and the role that you think software plays in helping people make better decisions than they otherwise would. So can you give us a bit of an overview of the thing that you've been building over the last couple of years? So AgendaScope at heart is a decision-making platform. That's its genesis. It's about understanding what we're trying to achieve, about aligning around a set of objectives, prioritizing and executing them. And inherent in that is we're going to make decisions and we should make those decisions well and where appropriate, fast. And if you can make those decisions better and faster and keep improving, on average, good things happen. So we know good decisions can go bad for no particular reason other than you got unlucky, in the same way that bad decisions can come good if you if you get lucky. But on the, in the round, if you are taking better decisions and you're doing it faster, you go in the right direction. If you are unable to make decisions, make decisions slowly or make poor decisions, you get compound interest either way, right? Either compounds negatively. Your poor decision leads to less freedom of action, leads to less good choices, leads to worse decisions, leads to failure. Your good decision leads to more resources, greater degrees of freedom, leads to better options, to better decisions, and, and so it goes. The role of software in this is... I'm not a great believer we can replace humans in the decision-making process, but 
software has this amazing ability to be a tool to augment human thinking and human action. And so the role of a platform like this is to be a system in which good behaviors are encouraged. So if you think about it, most businesses you talk to, if you say, how are you running your sales team? Is everybody getting by on pieces of paper and what have you, or do you have a CRM, right? These days, there's very few businesses that don't have a CRM because sales is complex and there's lots of moving parts and without a system, you can't cope. Would you run your development team without a tool like Jira? Love or hate Jira, right? It's it's a tool that will manage helps you manage the complexity of software development. Very few engineering teams would run without such a tool because it's a big, ugly problem and it helps give you perspective, prioritization, and so forth. And we can look at pretty much every part of the business, right? Ops, HR, customer support, they all have a system. But when you get to the executive team, the people who in theory are making the biggest and most important decisions have the most going on where they are hopefully thinking about the future, thinking about the possible conflicts and issues of the future. What system do they have? Most management teams are running with a set of tools that would not look out of place in the 1600s when the East India Company invented all this stuff, right? So what's the role of software? is to be a system to help manage the complexity of executing a strategy, which to me is, do we know what we should be paying attention to? Can we prioritize and get ourselves aligned around the most impactful things, the things that are gonna have the biggest influence on the future? Can we generate good alternatives to deal with those, select one and execute it and move on? The differentiation, though, here, I mean, if you look at the likes of Zero or Gyra, what they're doing a lot of the time is helping you organize, make visible, and then prioritize. But there's a higher order thing as well, which is to do with biases. There are so many different cognitive biases that influence how we make decisions. And when you get groups of people together, preferences and other psychological factors also influence how those teams think through and make decisions, what they prioritize, but also how they have a discussion and therefore what the outcome is. And it sounds like you're building something which can tackle that issue as well. Yes. We can put something somewhere with data that says how people see it and the degree to which they agree or disagree about how they see it, which is then a precursor to a conversation. Why do you think this has so much impact when I don't, or vice versa? What have you seen that I haven't seen? We can't necessarily fix cognitive biases or differences in information or those things, but we can to some extent reveal them. That notion of transparency or visibility, bring things to the surface, if there are conflicts to be had, and I know you believe this, if there are conflicts to be had, then let's bring them out and have them, as long as we can have them in a controlled way, because the route often is through, not around. The route around is too slow, it's too indirect, it doesn't take us where we want to go. But as long as those things are hidden, we can't. But if an opportunity is good enough, and you go, well, we really want to grab this. Why can't we? Now you have a chance to have a more honest conversation. 
And again, when you start bringing out alternatives, why wouldn't we do this? And often there's good reasons, right? So there's the, the terminology that, that Bezos didn't uh, invent but made popular of type one and type two decisions. Type one decisions being typically irreversible with long-term high stakes consequences. Often the roots of something are, I see the consequences you don't. Without wishing to be, to be political, for example, Brexit was an example of a type one decision. It's not quite irreversible, but it's certainly very hard to reverse. And it has a lot of long-term high stakes consequences. And the challenge for a lot of people who saw that was, it was very hard to bring that into the conversation. It was very difficult because you had a whole bunch of people who weren't really stakeholders particularly, because who knew what was going to happen? How do you have that conversation? But if you can bring a sense of this is what we're talking about, you can start to surface some of those hidden things that are what get in the way of good decision making. So bringing the two sides of this conversation together then, how is it that consultants can work with Agenda Scope to help clients make better decisions? We think that consultants want to do good work for their clients and would like often to do higher level work with their clients and tackle the real problems but are often lacking the leverage. So for example, one of the, the challenges that I found was how do you keep the really important stuff in the client's mind when they are so assaulted by the day-to-day -day operation of, of the business? If we think about what being a leader means, I, I really like the rocket fuel terminology of visionary and integrator, right? So the, the leader is the person who says, this is where I think the business should be, come with me. And the integration is the person who marshals the resource of the business and says, right, this is where we want to go. And there's this nice creative tension about, are you saying where we should be and is the business moving? But how many CEOs, MDs, spend a lot of time being a visionary leader, even if it's within their capabilities? They're so under pressure about stuff. It becomes very difficult. So can we keep those things frontmost enough in their minds that they can actually make their own progress on it? And so to a consultant who wants to get purchased, get leverage to do higher level work, a tool like AgendaScope is part of, of how that happens. Because by dint of keeping things in a system where you have a common frame of reference to those things, where the priority is not lost. The classic problem is what's important today is not important tomorrow. Something new is important tomorrow. Well, a system like AgendaScope resists that because it, it forces people to prioritize things. So something doesn't get to the top of the agenda by dint of being new and shiny or Bob's hobby horse project. It gets there because as a collective unit, we've said, this has got a great deal of impact. We think it's likely, or we'd like to make it likely. We think it's close enough that we can reach out and do it or, or fix it. So you keep the sharp end of the problem alive in the client's mind even when the day-to-day -day is extremely taxing. And you make more use of the time that they can think on the stuff that makes the most difference. So we, I would say we don't replace consultants, quite the reverse, we're an enabling service. How do you lift your work to a higher level and stay focused on the stuff that will really make in the long term the biggest difference? Matt, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure, Phil, thank you.
We've linked to Agendascope in the show notes for this episode. Do go and take a look at what they're doing and get in touch with Matt to learn more about his product. This is the Consultancy Business Podcast with me, Phil Lewis. It's time now to give some specific help to someone who's got in touch from the consultancy business community. As always, feel free to get your questions over to us. This one is all about writing good copy for your consultancy business marketing. I'm Steve Clinton, and I'm a copywriter who specializes in working with consultants and coaches. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the question we've had from our audience, just give us a bit of background. Tell us a bit about your career and how you ended up doing this sort of work. I have been a copywriter for 20 years now, nearly 20 years. I've done a stint of time working in marketing agencies, writing everything from direct mail for Kenko and P&G through to trails for BBC Radio 1. I've written for Volkswagen, um, BMW, SSE, and lots of charities. I've been freelance now for about um, six or seven years, and I have moved into working with consultants and coaches and other people in that sort of field because I just find it really interesting and rewarding, actually, working with people on that one-to-one basis. And I like helping people find the language to bring out the best of themselves when they're putting themselves forward, professionally speaking. And when you're reading coaching and consulting websites, let's give our listeners some shorthands here. What are the big no-nos? What are the sort of copyrighted death knells what are the kind of klaxons of horror uh well okay the word solutions is utterly horrible and should be expunged from the language immediately the problem with solutions is it's one of those deceptively useful words it looks really handy because it looks like a synonym for answer it also sounds very professional solutions we have solutions to everything it sounds like definitive answer in one word But because it's applied so broadly and has been for such a long time across so many different sectors by so many different people, it has become meaningless, completely meaningless. And so it isn't a useful word. It's a waste of air. It gets you nowhere. And it just is one of the most eye-rolling cliches you could possibly put in. The only people who should be using the word solutions are people who work in the chemistry industries. It reminds me a bit of the old... um that that classic flow chart about the phrase reach out in business are you the four tops yes yeah. if not do not use yeah, yeah exactly it's the same thing the other one that happens quite a lot is aggressive military analogies people talk about fighting this or the battle for that as if they're in a war that sort of stuff is dated it feels in the current sort of go- global climate it feels quite like a bit of a misstep really to be talking in a sort of semi-jocular way about sort of combat and war because obviously we have some horrendous situations going on globally at the moment and quite often especially if it refers to sort of historical things whether that's you know the 
Hundred Years War or World War Two. It just sounds really old fashioned. It can just make the writing sound really, really dated and also needlessly aggressive. Nobody wants to be feeling like they're being punched in the face when they're reading copy. Well, you're not in a war, are you? You're in a business park in Milton Keynes. <laughs> yeah. So question from our community. I'm trying to write my website and I'm really struggling. Any advice? Yeah. I mean, first of all, that's not a surprise. Everyone finds it really difficult to write about themselves because it's not something that we're taught very much how to do and actually we're discouraged from doing it quite a bit. So most people, including a lot of consultants and coaches, don't necessarily have a great deal of practice talking and writing about themselves. And what can happen is people will get too much in their heads about needing to sound quote unquote professional, which can end up just in sort of very generic business language. And then of course, if everyone writes like that, everyone sounds the same. The difficulty comes when trying to differentiate yourself. And that's where people struggle. Well, it seems to me most, there's two or three traps we all fall into. There's a trap which is to do with lots and lots of abstract nouns just piling up one on top of the other. Yeah. There's a trap where we sort of all get a bit overly grandiose and godlike in the way that we describe ourselves. And there's a trap in which we sort of fall into the kind of corporate jargon yeah sort of descriptors and and a combinations of all of those three things are basically as far as i can see about 90 95% of consultancy websites aren't they yeah the corporate jargon thing is particularly prevalent it's a very easy trap to fall into because as i say so many other people do it so when you're looking at what other people do you see all of this stuff with solutions and you know all that sort of all over the place and you think oh, okay that's how we do it because so-and-so is doing it so i'll do it like that as well and ultimately people end up writing stuff that doesn't sound like them one of the things that i try to do is actually talk to people first and get a sense of who they are and what their business is and who their customers are who their clients are and just get them talking about it because then the language that they would naturally use comes out and I will pick that up and then I can use that when I'm writing about them. That then results in language that reflects them, how they communicate and how they would talk to clients and talk about their clients. The other thing that people will do is focus on themselves too much. If I was going to give you a a big tip, if you were writing about yourself, one of the big things that I would say is think about your clients and your work through the lens of how your clients would see it rather than talking about yourself. Talk about your client. What do they need? What do they want? What's their problem? And if you think about it that way and you write about how you would tackle that, that is when you get wording and language that cuts through to the people that you're trying to reach. I think what you're saying in essence is get out of your own head and get out of your own way, isn't it? Yeah, stop talking about yourself. Try to write in a way that feels natural as if you were explaining what you do to somebody 
or talking in a meeting to a potential client rather than thinking I am writing and I have to communicate in writing because most people needlessly formalize when they're writing, particularly if they're writing about themselves. I remember years ago, I did an interview with somebody, a junior consultant, and I said, um, so what do you do then? And he said, I create ecosystems of value. Yeah. Well, that's just a lot of bollocks, isn't it? It doesn't <laughs> make anything. Well, I asked him, what's an ecosystem of value? At which point, actually, the kind of the, the wiring seemed to short circuit. And um, we seem to be moments away from tears. But I think if you look at most consultancy websites, we're in the world of ecosystems of value. Can be, yeah. And actually what we need to be in the world of so much more and so much more clearly is, who are you? What problems have you got? And how can I help you solve them? The real challenge, I think, that comes from that for consultants is twofold. One is... I am actually not sure how connected many of us are to the way that clients think about the problems that they've got, which I suspect means you've got to go out and talk to your clients and really gather some insight to help in the process. And I'm also thinking, and it'd be interesting to get your take on this, a lot of consultants feel that if they're writing really specifically about what problem or problems they're trying to solve, that they're kind of saying, I don't do any of this other stuff as well. And if you're saying I do this, but I don't do this, then actually, are we, are we turning away business? So it can feel like quite threatening, I think, to people to be specific. That is an understandable position. The flip side of that is that if you overgeneralize, you just end up sounding bland, the same as everyone else, and ultimately quite boring. No one is going to buy something from somebody they think is boring or dull, or just selling the same old stuff that 300,000 other people sell. Do you know, it's so true that we overlook it all the time in our thinking about sales. We think clients are wanting, yes, they're wanting solutions to their problems, but they're also wanting people to work with who they can get on with, who they can actually spend time with. And so there's this really interesting balance, isn't there, which is you've got to try and write about what's going on for them and what they need and what problems they need solved, but in a way that sounds distinctively and humanly you. And that's the art, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. so like the you drown them out in that sense. You're right. It's a balancing act because you can't go too far the other way and try to sort of create the writing equivalent of the seeking for the missing, you know, the mag missing chord or the eighth color of the rainbow because it just doesn't exist. You can go too far with this and be too wacky, which is you know not what anyone wants either so it, ultimately it's sometimes it is just about experimentation and playing around with tone and letting go of that need to be formal and thinking about a business type language because letting go of a lot of that jargon a lot of consultants will find that they're quite attached to jargon or stuff that you know a lot of people would see as jargon because they think it's a shorthand to communicate understanding because in some ways that is what it is but it is also excluding language jargon can be very excluding it can push people away like i'm using this phrase or word that a lot of people wouldn't understand steve if any of our consultants listening are interested in talking to a writer like you about how you can help them where do they find you I've got a website, which is steveclinton.co.uk. You can also find me on LinkedIn if you just search for Steve Clinton. 
I will come up on there as well. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I hope that's been useful. We've put links to where you can find Steve online in the show notes. So this episode's been all about being clear. It seems to me that this means three things. Firstly, simplicity and directness of language. Cut the jargon and the lazy metaphors to help people properly understand where you're coming from. Simplicity and directness of language are made possible by the second point, clarity of thought. In any client situation, groupthink, cognitive biases and preferences all exert a huge pull on what gets time and attention. Being able to take an elevated perspective, one that is data-led, brings new insight and understanding that can then be turned into direct, punchy communication and action. Finally, don't ignore the role that technology can play in creating clarity. Platforms like Agendascope bring much-needed visibility and transparency to business problems and can themselves be a conduit for that all-important elevated discussion to take place. So, in closing, don't forget the full-length versions of all past episodes of the Consultancy Business Podcast are now out from behind the paywall. You can get them wherever you get your podcasts from. And please do like, rate and review us wherever you listen. It helps us out more than you could know. See you next time. New episodes always on the first Monday of the month. Bye for now. Bye for now.